He's everywhere, isn't he? <laughs> the title of this talk, The Farmer and the Cowboy Should Be Friends, comes, of course, from the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Oklahoma. Now, had I known that Nicholas Pickwell would have come with so many slides, I would have chosen something from Carousel instead, but there we are. <clears throat> now, in American history, if not in the musical Oklahoma, it was very difficult for these two groups to achieve any sort of sense of commonality. One wanted to fence and preserve the land and the cattle on it. The other wanted to range free and drive herds of cattle from place to place for commercial purposes. Now, the title of this talk probably also makes me a cattle rustler, for I stole it from one of the most stereotypical cowboys ever to ride the Bookman's Range, Johnny Jenkins. Johnny was a cowboy, all right. To say that he dealt in early Americana in the West would be true. To say that he made large deals and represented highly important investment firms like Allen and Company in bidding on the General Theological Seminary copy of the Gutenberg Bible at auction would be true. But these statements don't really tell us who Johnny Jenkins was. In real life, so to speak, he was a big-time poker player of the I'll raise you 25,000 variety known to his card-playing companions as Austin Squatty. His book-selling premises burned down twice, perhaps once too often. He may well have been a forger, and he ended up dead by a river in mysterious circumstances. One might say that Johnny Jenkins was a cartoon representation of how many librarians and bibliographers envisioned book dealers and book auctioneers. Johnny played to it. He wore a 10-gallon hat that looked bigger than any other 10-gallon hat you'd ever seen, partly because he was a very small man. And he drove the longest Cadillac in the entire state of Texas. Librarians and collectors bought his books, but they often made the mistake of thinking that he didn't really know anything about them. In fact, he might not always have known, but he did know how to hire excellent catalogers. Jenkins delivered his talk on the farmer and the cowboy when he was head of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, but I never heard it. What I did do was make a trip to Austin with Terry when we were setting up Bam Bam, which was a cost-free online reporting service for missing books and stolen books and manuscripts. Jenkins made the Booksellers Association underwrite the printing of the book form of the first few records in Bam Bam, the only financial report this service ever received from anybody in the 12 years of its existence. The cowboy was quite a bit more complex than his cartoon image, but indeed, he was a cowboy. And what is the stereotype of the farmer? Booksellers will tell you that librarians don't really like books. I once encountered Jacques Velicoup of London's E.P. Goldschmidt in an absolute lather why? Because that morning he had offered a beautiful 17th century book in a superb original binding to an American librarian. And the response was, I want it, but it's too expensive. Couldn't you just sell me the book and keep the binding? Keep the binding, Jacques kept repeating. This book survived four centuries in tax, and he wants me to keep the binding? He hates books. I'll never sell him another. And Jacques was rich enough to do just that. He never did sell him another. This sort of thing happens just often enough to keep the stereotype alive. And librarians, and incidentally bibliographers, 
sometimes treat dealers as though they don't know anything, as though formal academia has a lock on all book knowledge. Some librarians seem to think that the dealers have spent so much time out by the chuck wagon that they aren't worthy of the dining room. Now, both the farmer and the cowboy occasionally need to be reminded that their interests ultimately are the same. In this case, it's all books and manuscripts. And their varying experiences can make for complementary knowledge. As Jacques Barzin usefully pointed out in the House of Intellect, there is a distinction between knowing the subject and knowing the craft. He maintained that the house or audience of intellect lost the sense of being an audience apart with the adoption of the superstition that understanding is identical with professional skills. Said Barzin, the universal formula is you cannot understand or appreciate by art, science, trade, unless you yourself practice it. Now, as there are not many cowboys in this group, how many cowboys have we got? A few. Okay, not very many. So I want to talk a little bit to the librarians, collectors, and bibliographers about dealers, auctions, commercial catalogs, and other sources of the information we all need. Now remember that what you're about to hear is the opinions of a drifter. That's me. Neither a farmer nor a cowboy, but one who wanders through, knowing how to farm but not really doing it, able to punch a cow but not a member of the cowfolks union. Bibliographies are blessings to all of us, and I envy all of you who are taking Don Crummel's course, which is a wonderful way to learn about research tools. And as you use bibliographies extensively, you will learn the peculiarities of many bibliographers. For instance, you will learn that Klaus Nissen sometimes had difficulty in adding up plates. He would list them all correctly, but adding is just not his strongest point, so you have to check his totals. You will learn why the Publications Committee of the Bibliographical Society of America is trying to figure out a way to put the Bibliography of American Literature on CD-ROM. Because of Jacob Blank's plan of arrangement for this work, it is irritating to, work, to use. Nobody likes to use BAL. Michael Winship's Index and Epitome will make BAL more user-friendly. But ultimately, it needs CD-ROMing if it is to fulfill its potential. Sometimes, however, bibliographies and library catalogs take you partway, but only partway, on your search to know what a given book is and what it means. Here's a story that provides an example. I used to collect books by, illustrated by, or about the Swiss-German painter Paul Clay. This collection was begun defensively. I am married to a book-mad person who is also a labor historian. When we were younger, he would spend hours in bookstores in both Europe and America that specialized in labor and radical history, which interested me not at all. But I gradually noticed that books about Paul Clay turned up in these places with some regularity. Remember that the radical playwright Clifford Odets had one of the finest collections of clay paintings in America. <clears throat> and thus, the collection began as a means to keep from going loco. Happily, clay proved to be brilliant at all levels, and thus the collecting process became fascinating. One difficult book to find 
is the book that is number 144 in the artist in the book. This was a work by a fifth-rate German mystic named Kurt Korenz. Its title, and please excuse my hideously spoken German, which my daughter maintains is retarded. Anyway, its title was Potsdamer Platz oder die Nacht des Neuen Messias, Ecstatische Visionen. It is a book that you would never want to read, but it does have ten lithographs by Paul Clay. One day in 1971, Peter Krauss, of Ursus Books, called to say that he had found a copy of Potsdamer Platz. It turned out to be a homely object, bound in dirty sky blue cloth. And Clay's name wasn't even on the title page. Peter hadn't had time to check it before he brought it over. So we sat down with my copy of The Artist in the Book and with a couple of books on clay by Will Groman and Jürgen Glazmer and some other sources. And lo and behold, the imprint on Peter's book was wrong. It said 1919 rather than 1920. The page size was wrong too, too small in both directions. The limitation was wrong. It was one of 5,000, not one of 500. And on it went, no preface, wrong number of pages, it obviously wasn't the artist in the book number 144, but what was it? All of the standard sources and all of the libraries we could contact agree with number 144. Even the Clay Stiftung agreed with number 144. To explain about the Clay Stiftung, it is in Bern, housed within the walls of the art museum, and it is the fascist dictator of everything Clay. He was very methodical about listing his artworks. Would that he had been methodical about preparing his canvases, but that was another matter. And Clay kept a notebook listing all of his paintings, complete with his own personal rating system for the ones that he thought to be exceptionally good. Now, the then director of the Clay Stiftung really didn't want to know about the book that Peter had brought me. He had written about number 144, and that was that. We finally found confirmation that our book was known by others and that the artist in the book hadn't just run off the rails at number 144. Indeed, there were one or two copies in libraries, libraries that thought they had number 144. However, the German auction price guide, Jahrbuch des Auctionpreise, described number 144 as second issue, which meant that at least one auction house cataloger knew the truth. And the scholarly old print and illustrated book dealer Lucian Goldschmidt responded, as somehow we knew he would, saying, of course, my dear, there were two issues. He had seen one copy some 30 years previously, but he was able to describe it correctly and precisely over the phone. In fact, we could have saved ourselves a fair amount of effort by calling Lucian in the first place. But Peter and I were both very young men, and it was hard to admit any kind of ignorance in those days. Eventually, Peter Krauss also came up with a superb copy of number 144 in the original packing carton and signed by Clay's son, Felix. It was a much more imposing-looking book, larger, with leather corners and spine, handmade end papers that wished they were beautiful, Clay's name prominently on the title page, a preface, altogether a book that looked like it was one of 500 copies. Now the question became historical. Okay, here were two issues of a book 
in two successive years. One was Clay's name hiding in the Colophon statement. The other was it splashed all over the title page and preface. Why? The answer lies in the career of Paul Clay. When Pop Dover Plots, isn't that a lovely title, was first published in 1919, Clay was known and had been part of several successful group exhibitions in Munich, but he was not yet a star. Certainly, he was not somebody who would be featured by a book publisher. Thus, Georg Müller didn't even bother to mention him on the title page. And the reason that the ugly little first issue is so rare is that nobody giving it a cursory glance would have bothered to save it. Not many people keep an ugly book by a fifth-rate German mystic. Incidentally, Krauss Reprints reprinted it in 1973. They reprinted the 1919 issue. And if you look in most library catalogs, you won't find Clay's name mentioned attached to that book either. Now, in 1919, after the publication of the first issue, Clay had his first major one-man exhibition, and it was a huge success. Muller saw an opportunity to finally make some money out of Corinth's book, and he reissued the book in its number 144 form. Needless to say, almost all of the 500 copies printed are still around. Thus, these two issues of Pop's Plots form a physical representation of a turning point in Paul Clay's career. In 1919, he was known, but not major. Then came the Munich one-man exhibition, and everything changed. In 1920, he published his Creative Credo, and then went on to become one of the elite of the artist faculty members at the Bauhaus. When the Lembach House in Munich held an exhibition in 1979, marking the centenary of Clay's birth, it borrowed these two books and exhibited them to symbolize the turning point in Clay's career. Once the why of the two issues of the books had been established, they had come to have a new meaning as a pair of books. Eventually, the two issues of Potsdamer Plots and the rest of this Clay collection were donated to the library of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, making it the only library in America, anyway, to have both. From 1991 on, anybody who had access to Arlen could discover the correct records of both these issues. That they could do so, however, had very little to do with academia and very much to do with two dealers, one collector, one auction price guide, and a donation. A stray little heifer that nobody knew was lost was brought back to the herd. To be certain, Potsdamer plots with no huge prize bull of a book, but its story did have some importance to those who studied Paul Clay. Shared knowledge was the key to sorting out Potsdamer plots, everybody gathering around the campfire. Now here's something that's more like a stampede. This one is for you visual materials catalogers. In a recent article, M.G. Piety, isn't that a great name? A graduate student at the University of Copenhagen pointed out that many of the published portraits of the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard aren't of Kierkegaard at all. The front cover of Michael Weston's 1994 book, Kierkegaard and Modern Continental Philosophy, published by Rutledge in England, features a portrait of the 19th century thinker Christian Moldeck. While a recent Danish bestseller about Kierkegaard has in it a portrait drawing of the theologian H.N. Clausen. 
The Danish lawyer-politician F.W. Treschow and the artist P.C. Claystrup have also been pictured as Kierkegaard from time to time. Now, it's oddly apt that all this confusion should center around Kierkegaard, who loved false identities, and who maintained that readers didn't need to know whether a work was written by, to quote, Balaam's ass, or a guffawing fool, or an apostle, or an angel. Because he was averse to having his portrait done, according to Mr. Piety, Kierkegaard bequeathed a visual information gap, and others have rushed to fill it. Now, lest you think that this is a unique happening, here is a book called The Presidency of John Adams, issued by the University of Pennsylvania Press, with a lovely portrait of John Quincy Adams on the cover. Now, back to Kierkegaard. The problem of sorting out his likeness is becoming acute, for the Danes are having an international conference, a series of lectures, and several exhibitions devoted to Kierkegaard's life and work in 1996. And here are all these likenesses of others cascading onto book covers and the like. In this instance, the scholarly image cataloger can come to the aid of an entire nation. At the moment, though, the chief attempts to sort this out are being undertaken by Mr. Piety and by his fellow graduate student, Paul A. Bauer. Note that they stake their claim, not in a scholarly journal, but in the magazine Lingua Franca and on the Internet, leaving the farm for mining territory because it's hard to get noticed on the farm. Auction catalogs have also been used as a way to stake intellectual claims. And this year's Walton Lecture at Rare Book School, Christopher de Hamel, is a master at achieving quick publication by using auction catalogs to new purposes. For several years, while he was writing his book, Reclassifying Books of Hours, he used the catalogs of his sales at Sotheby's to publish first, to stake out the territory, avoiding the weight that scholarly journals often demanded. He would slip in a few pages here and there, linking the lot under discussion with the larger framework of his work in progress. It was sort of like modifying the company brand to start your own herd, except to higher purpose. And even when de Hamel was not at work on a book, his catalogs have consistently merited the attention of scholars. One of the oddest tributes paid to him had to do with the catalog he produced for a very early handmade deck of cards, which was sold to a major American art museum. The catalog was plagiarized in its entirety in the museum's annual report under the signature of one of the curators. All that I have said here is a sneaky way of demonstrating why librarians and book researchers of all sorts should get to know people in the trade and should read the best of the auction house and dealer catalogs even when they have no plans to buy and no budget to buy. The same is true of visiting the exhibitions that auction houses hold. Major sales provide opportunities to see hundreds of interesting books and manuscripts and some superb bindings without having to put in call slips or make appointments way ahead of time or wait to see them. Rather than overdo it, I will eschew the cattle show analogy that fits in here. <clears throat> right now is a very good time for going to see the exhibitions and reading the auction catalogs of early books. Paul Needham, formerly of the Morgan Library and now at Sotheby's, 
and Felix Oyens at Christie's have been engaging in what could be called dueling catalogs, rather like dueling banjos, for a few years now. Some of the less enlightened members of the trade have complained about the thoroughness of their cataloging, with its complete collations and detailed descriptions, but it certainly makes for a pleasant change for the from the clips sort of cataloging that you used to find in many auction house productions and often still do. Last summer, I spoke at length about Paul's work on the Don Oeschigan collection. Now, 1995 has been the year of the Schaefer sales at Sotheby's, not to mention the fascinating sale of over 80 lots of Aldine's at Christie's. A brief mention of just a couple of lots will give you a small idea of what was available. If you had gone to New York any time between December 2nd and 7th of 1994, you could have viewed, seen, handled, talked to people about Dr. Otto Schaefer's early Italian books. If you were interested in bindings, for instance, you could have a good close look at Lot 127. <clears throat> this was Andrea Navagero's Orationes Due, Venice 1530, in a Renaissance binding with an Apollo and Pegasus medallion or plaquette, made by Marcantonio Guiri for Giovanni Battista Grimaldi. Schaefer's copy was formerly the major J.R. Abbey copy, which sold at auction to Schaefer in 1965 for 2,400 pounds, at which time it was identified as a Farnese binding. That's because it was a decade before Anthony Hobson would publish his Apollo and Pegasus, reattributing the library to Grimaldi and identifying the three binders who worked for Grimaldi. Schaefer's copy now sold for $140,000. Now, although prices today are vastly different from those in 1965, this price also tells of the great improper increase of interest in bindings that has taken place in the intervening period. One no longer hears the phrase, oh, it was just something sold as a binding. And in bindings at auction are handled more carefully today than they were in the 1970s, and they really were treated like hides on a herd of cattle. <clears throat> I can remember one collection of bindings at an auction exhibition in the 70s that had a twilight zone quality about them. They had been made to undergo such a drastic change in atmospherics so quickly that you could look at the cases in the morning and see how far they had crawled, so to speak, during the night. As for the Aldine sold in 1995, if you were interested in Aldous or in books of ours, there was something to be learned from Felix Oyen's description of Lot 14 in the Christie London sale of May 3rd. The description of this book is a wonderful mix of the commercial and the scholarly. The work is a book of ours, Youth of Rome, published on 5 December 1497, a beautiful book that is rarely seen complete. This copy is described as being in, quote, very fine 19th century French bibliophile condition, which means that it was washed, resized, and pressed, which is nobody's modern's idea of very fine. <clears throat> but what's interesting about this description is that Oyens takes issue with Bueller's traditional ordering of the states of one choir of this work, arguing that the paper strongly indicates that the traditional set A is a replacement setting of the original setting, traditionally known as state B. This is something to think about. 
possibly in addition to our realized knowledge about this work. Another bunch of interesting auction catalogs this year were issued by Dorothy Sloan, a Texas dealer and a glamorous blonde who has a deep knowledge of Western Americana. At one time, she was Johnny Jenkins's best cataloger, but she is not at all like Johnny Jenkins. <clears throat> Her auctions were held in Los Angeles, and they were of the extremely interesting collections of Henry H. Clifford, an investment counselor and one of two people ever to assemble all of the Zamorano 80, the other being F.W. Beinecke. The catalogs are handsome, printed by Tom Taylor and designed by Bradley Hutchinson, and one of them is a catalog of the most extensive collection of California pictorial letter sheets in private hands, a subject about which I, for one, knew absolutely nothing. In the Zamorano 80 sale, lot 41 is the one that holds special interest for the Bibliographical Inquirer. This was Lansford Warren Hastings' The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, published in Cincinnati in 1845. Only about a dozen copies of the first edition are known. Hastings, by the way, was a thoroughly bad sort, an agent for the Mormons in secular matters who was known for his lack of scruples. In fact, he was a contributor to 19th century American cannibalism. For members of the Donner Party believed his writings, which led to their unfortunate route and subsequent gnawing misfortunes. <laughs> In cataloging this book, which sold for $13,000, Sloan corrects the collation that was given by Becker in the fourth edition of Plains and Rockies, noting that she has examined the Huntington as well as the Clifford copy. Visitors to the exhibition before this auction thus got a double benefit, seeing a book they might never see again and finding a correction to an oft-used reference work. Other, perhaps unexpected uses for auction catalogs have to do with security. To avoid theft or book rustling, you need to know what might have become valuable to thieves that wasn't before. One area that has really heated up in the last two decades is photographica. In 1970, for instance, you could hardly give away a set of Edward S. Curtis's North American Indian. Jack Bartfeld had a set that he was trying to sell for $2,000, and there were no takers. Then, with the photographic boom, almost overnight, the price of a set of Curtis rose from $2,000 to $70,000, and sets at unwary institutions began disappearing right and left. Never mind that a set now sells for prices like $464,000 and $600,000 as Native Americans reclaim both their lands and their images. Cowboys and Indians have become a new kind of game. The knowledge of what's hot and what's not can be very good for maintaining your collections. You should have some idea of what the rustlers want so that you can guard against them. And while we're talking about catalogs, Let's not neglect dealers' catalogs, which also can provide useful information and often even more flavor than auction catalogs. So the dealer can choose his herd while the auctioneer has to sell what he's given to sell. While in England recently, I picked up two dealers' catalogs that were particularly interesting. The first is Jarndyce Catalog 100, entitled Bloods, 19th Century Working Class Fiction. This catalog by Helen Smith is quite wonderful in every detail. Even the loosely inserted ad at the beginning for the British National Blood Appeal. 
Floods are another term for Penny Dreadfuls, the sensational working-class serial fiction published between about 1835 and 1900. The term is perhaps a little more descriptive of content and a little less condescending than Penny Dreadful. But they were boiled down whose heritage was earlier Gothic and picaresque novels, true crime broadsides and chapbooks, nautical novels, Scott, Catherine Ward, Hannah Maria Jones, and above all, Dickens, but also Dumas, theatrical melodrama, and radical literature, cartoons, and pamphlets. They were also the result of increased literacy, technical developments in printing and paper manufacture, and the lowering and then abolition of the newspaper stamp and paper duties by 1861. The development of efficient distribution systems also played a role in making them popular. Bloods usually had four, eight, and 16-page parts. The penny weekly issues usually have the imprint and sometimes the title vertically up the spine. The monthly issued gatherings of four parts tend to have pictorial wrappers, eventually printed in colors. As the form developed, the text tended to be in two columns. Except for the halfpenny cheapos, there usually was one engraving per issue, which might or might not have anything to do with the work. Titles and content sleeves had to be bought separately for a penny. Now you can go and find out much more information than this by reading Altic, Block, Summers, Medcraft, and so on. And in so doing, you will see what a major Advil headache such writers of bloods as George William MacArthur Reynolds and Thomas Peckett Priest have been to bibliographers. And that's not to mention the prodigious James Malcolm Reimer, author of such immortal works as Barney the Vampire and Ada the Betrayed, who often had ten titles underway at once. The Jarndyce catalog, though, gives you a feeling for the problems in this area. Consider, if you will, Item 276. It is called The Jew and the Foundling, a Romance, by the author of The Merchant's Daughter, The Child of Charity, Gilbert Copley, etc. Now remember these three. The Merchant's Daughter, The Child of Charity, Gilbert Copley. Okay? This work may be by press or rhymer. It is listed as anonymous by Summers and Medcraft. But Medcraft lists press as the author of Gilbert Copley. Reimer, however, is the author of Grace Rivers, or The Merchant's Daughter. And nobody knows who wrote Marianne, The Child of Charity. In the autograph lots of this Jarndyce catalog, you encounter a real cowboy of a dealer from Clapham Common in London, Barry Ono, who was the self-styled Penny Dreadful King. Here, the dealer's catalog gives you a different sense of this sort of book than do any of the bibliographies along with some wonderfully lurid illustrations. Sometimes it's good to ride out a bit and look back at the farm from another perspective. Now, my very favorite catalog of this last English trip was that of Roy Davids, that's this, who is not a cowboy, but a rather wonderful pirate. And I brought one along for Terry's collection. This is a catalog of manuscripts, literary portraits, and association items and it is an exemplary production. Many manuscript catalogs are little more than lists of accumulated stuff that happens to be in handwriting. The David's catalog is a book of short essays with an introduction that has some interesting things to say about the relationship between portraits and manuscripts. The National Portrait Gallery in London thought so too. They have four copies of the catalog. 
I rarely read every word of every item in a catalog, but this one demands it. David began as a teacher of history, then worked for Hoffman and Freeman, then took charge of autographs and manuscripts at Sotheby's, then ran the entire book department, and then became a dealer. The training of the historian shows in such items as 134, where he takes a letter written by the third Earl of Southampton, Shakespeare's patron, from prison, and makes quite a good case for the letter having been written at the time of Southampton's second imprisonment for treason in 1601, rather than the first time in 1598 when he was thrown in jail for having impregnated and secretly married one of the Queen's maids of honor, Elizabeth Vernon, something that the Queen appreciated not at all. And David makes an interesting case for the unnamed recipient of the letter being Southampton's old antagonist, Lord Grey of Wilton. The cataloging auctioneer can be glimpsed in item 128, and if you want to know what machine gun cataloging is, take a look at this item. What is being described is a tea caddy made from the mulberry tree that grew in Shakespeare's garden at New Place. And David here builds up his case from bursts of staccato facts. He's having fun, and you will too. The techniques used in the David's catalog also can be studied with benefit by those of you who have to produce exhibition catalogs. For seizing the interest of the reader is an important part of producing a good exhibition catalog, as much so as it is of selling a manuscript. Carrie will make sure that this whole catalog will be where you can peruse it. It's worth a good hard look. Ideally, the Bellinger Ranch here on the University of Virginia range should be a model for the world outside. Rare Book School brings together a wide variety of people who share a common interest in the book. It is unique in its mix of academics, dealers, conservators, binders, collectors, techies, and so on. And we all talk and study and learn from each other as well as the courses. Whether you be a farmer or a cowboy, try to keep that spirit going when you get back to your own territory. Call it the reintegration of book culture or chewing the fat with book people, but do it. Thank you.